The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Guys, really the bulk of what I want to try to do uh, is to free us for interaction. Uh, I feel like Scotty and I have delivered a lot of content that hopefully has been helpful. And anytime I'm in a room with leaders, and especially with a small enough room that we can make it conversational, um, I just want to take time to say, okay, in light of what you've heard and what the Lord's doing and what you're processing, what would be helpful to sort of talk about more fully? So I want to leave some time for a really extended Q&A and just sort of dialogue with you guys about whatever. So I'm going to, I told Jeff, I'll take like seven minutes. I want to say just a couple things real briefly, um, and then I hope that will set up uh, just some helpful dialogue for us. So I just want to encourage you as I do this six or seven minutes, just you guys be thinking about what are the things that you sort of want to think through or talk through together more fully or uh, by way of application. Um, Scotty mentioned the idea of gospel culture. And as I think about you guys, if if anytime I'm talking to leaders, what I want to say that I I just sort of want you to embrace and engage with is that you guys are the stewards of gospel culture. The most important thing you can do as leaders of a church or as leaders of a gospel community within a church is to do your best to ensure a gospel culture. Um, when, I, when I think about gospel culture, um, there's a lot of ways to probably get at that and get around that and sort of talk about what that is. Um, but I like Ray Ortland's definition the best. Um, he says a gospel culture is a place where no one has anything to fear. Um, a gospel culture is a place where no one has anything to fear. Meaning, um, because all of our sin is already outed by the cross, and because it's okay for us to be flawed, imperfect human people who are trusting in a perfect God, um, a, a culture where the gospel is really central is a place or should be a place where man, nobody, nobody needs to be afraid of anything. Um, the, the person who needs to confront and deal with sin shouldn't be afraid to do that. Um, the person who's feeling guilt and shame and fear shouldn't be afraid to express and acknowledge that. Um, and so you guys need to see your role as men. If what we're, if what we're called to do is to sort of shape gospel culture, let's just be as relentless about that as we can. Let's be as relentless as we can about creating that kind of a context within, um, within our gospel communities and within our church. Um, I, I did a, a, a talk here a couple of years ago for the church planters um, where one of the things I framed out that's been really helpful to me is just the idea of creating space. Uh, Scotty mentioned that as well. So if I think about, like, here, here's the problem with someone who's wired like me, and some of you guys might be wired like me. Even when I hear, like, okay, good, my job as a leader is to create a gospel culture, that feels really weighty to me because I'm like, oh, gosh, there's probably a lot of things I need to be doing to create that kind of a culture. How do I do that? And I think I overthink that and start to get nervous about, gosh, am I doing it the way that, you know, I really should be? Um, but I, I think the idea of creating space or making room, right, that if the gospel, if the truth of the gospel is central, and so as Scotty said, we're committed to the word and the word is central. And if we're committed to creating space and that idea of table fellowship, right, for us at our church, why, why do we care that every gospel community shares a meal together? Well, because there is something profound about the space that a meal creates, 
the conversations that happen, what you find out about what's going on in people's lives and what's going on in their souls and what's going on in their work and what's going on in their families as you're just sitting around eating becomes the raw material then for um, applying the gospel. And so I want to encourage you that actually creating a gospel culture by the grace of God is, is pretty simple. Um, it's just a faithful presence over time grounded in the truth of the gospel. And so I want to free you a little bit, especially those of you that are like gospel community leaders and your, your calling is how do, I, how do I sort of shape a community where people are transformed by the gospel? Um, man, just showing up is like 50 to 60% of the job. If you're just opening your home or showing up at somebody's home faithfully every week, what you're doing is you begin to, get a, begin to build a rhythm and a pattern in people's lives where the Lord uses the truth of the gospel to open them up to heal them, to transform them, and to shape them. Um, and so I just want to, that's the, the sort of thought I want to give you, is that your job, our job together is the sort of protection, creation um, of a gospel culture, and maintaining that as best we can. Um, there's one other thought that's been really helpful to me. Um, I, I need to read, I get blessed by reading people outside of my stream of thought and people who don't think like I do. One of the people who is that for me is Brennan Manning. Uh, some of you guys have probably read some of Brennan Manning's work. But Brennan Manning, um, you know, is very in touch with brokenness. He, he's one of those guys who has a very merciful voice as he speaks about how the grace of God speaks into the brokenness of the world. And one of the things he convinced me of, I was reading some, some of his really old stuff. Uh, he's now deceased, of course, died a couple of years ago. But I, I think the book I was reading was in like the late 70s that he wrote it. Um, and one of the things he said in there is, at the core of every human being is radical insecurity. And that's what we're called to relieve with the gospel. And so even um, whatever sin issues, whatever guilt, fear, and shame issues, whatever sort of family of origin issues are stirred up in people, all, all of that is just creating insecurity. Um, and that's what we're called to relieve with the gospel. And so the reason I like Ray Ortland's definition of a place where no one has anything to fear is because I think what it suggests is a place where the gospel's proclaimed in a way that like resolves a lot of those insecurities and makes it okay to, to acknowledge them, to work through them, and to grow in gospel confidence and gospel humility. Um, and so for me, it's been helpful to think about as I'm applying the gospel to people, as I'm sort of creating a context where people can come in, in contact with the truth of what God's done in Jesus, how is it resolving the insecurities that all of us have? How's it dealing with guilt, shame, fear? That's why I chose to talk about those three things last night. How's it dealing with self-doubt? How's it dealing with father wounds? How's it dealing with identity issues? How does the gospel speak into all those sort of deep places in our lives and give us confidence and security where we'd be prone to insecurity. So um, that, I hope, is sort of just a helpful rubric to think about what does a gospel culture feel like and look like? What's a place where no one has anything to fear and where the gospel begins to speak into all the baseline insecurities that are present in all of us, whether those manifest as fear or as pride, there's always insecurity at the bottom of it. Um, so that's uh, um, hopefully some helpful things for you guys to think about. So I just wanted to give you those two nuggets. I, I want to just say now, let's just do Q&A. What do you guys want to talk about more related to anything that we've done this weekend? And Jeff, maybe you've got a, a direction you want to go here. So Scotty, come come sit here with me and let's chop it up. I'm going to hand you guys 
this mic. Oh, and you're going to take the roving one. I got you. No, I'm, no, I'm going to give you both. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so for this group, as specific as you need to be, any questions you guys have, um, if you guys wouldn't mind, this is, you know, maybe a third or below of our leaders. We're going to send this audio out to them in the next week or so. So repeat the question. So repeat the question if you would. I'll um, forget, but just I've remind got, me. I've got some that have been sent in beforehand that we'll fill the gaps with, but this is, you know, your space now, so ask away. So the question is, how do we how do we help multiply gospel communities and especially resolve the tension people feel of, I really love these people, so I don't want to send them away. Uh, I think that's actually one of the hardest things about a, ch- a church that's growing is having to wrestle through those things. Um, and so I just think actually the painting is a, is a good place to go there or the story is a good place to go because here's what it tells us. Um, it tells us, one, the church exists for mission, not comfort, right? Like there is a discomfort in the mission of God because it means we're always being sent and being sent involves leaving behind. And we see that in the story of Abraham. We see that in the story of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. There's this sense, even we see it in, you know, if you think about the New Testament, Acts 13, where there's this church in Antioch that has this really dense, rich gospel community. And they say, the spirit says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've entrusted them. So they send those guys out and there's this sense of leaving and grieving. So I think we have to acknowledge that and just say, hey, it's going to be hard. It's not going to feel like, oh, yay, we're multiple. And if all we do is say, mission, 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 and make and, and tell people they need to be happy about the fact their group's multiplying, we're probably not honoring the fullness of what's going on there. So we need to say mission, 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 and grief and sadness and, you know, change. But if we, if we allow a new creation to be what pulls us forward, I always want to say, look, here's what God's doing is actually he's He's just giving us a bigger family, and we got eternity to enjoy one another. So let's not, like, negate or discount the relationships we have now, but let's let that vision of the future pull us into the discomfort of mission and the, and the vision of what if God gives me relationships that are this deep in the next community and the next community and the next community, you know? And so as we're talking about vision, those are the kind of the things I want to put before people is, is to allow this story to frame us because all of us default to comfort. And so when we have relationships that we feel are meaningful, there's, n- there's a desire to stay there. And that's where sort of we have to let the gospel pull us forward in ways that are rightly complex. I don't know what no, that's great. I would just add this, that although I don't think you need to give everybody in your small group or your home fellowship, your gospel community, the Myers-Briggs test, but do know this, uh, you can be thinking about in any given structure, which personalities might be more comfortable, you know, who, who are your extroverts that you can even be dialogue with early on about, look, here, we exist for this person, and there's going to be some people in small groups that typically are going to be more, more ready for that adventure, and, and others are more timid and really need to be, maybe be in the group, uh, the staying group. Uh, for, and so just, just be aware of who, who is in the group and, and how do you build the groups. And uh, I think when there's a strategy of multiplication, there's a way of doing it redemptively and there's a way of doing it destructively. If people begin to think our goal is simply to have as many groups as we can, we're going to have 60 groups by next spring, then it becomes pragmatic rather than healing and really building community. So... That's a part of it. So always be building leaders, of course. I'll talk out of our experience, too. Here's a conversation I had with, um, we were start. We were trying to multiply a gospel community last year. 
And there was this husband and wife couple that I was like, hey, I want you guys to multiply this out and help lead this new thing. And they looked at me and said, well, we've been in seven different gospel communities in the nine years we've been in this church. And I just realized we, we're failing them because they're experiencing exactly that of like, just when I get established in some relationships that are getting transformative, you're asking me to multiply. And because we're a missional church, we're like mission. Yes. Right. And so I had to repent and say, okay, as a pastor, we've done a poor job giving the space that it actually takes for those relationships to be as deeply transformative as I want. So I want to fight against comfort, but I also had to repent of not honoring the displacement that that can create when there's not the stability in those relationships. So I think that's the tension that you're going to have to face as a church. And the answer to that is probably sometimes you got to start brand new groups from scratch. And I know you guys do that rather than multiple. So so I, I've learned as a pastor, I think it takes two to three years in the same functional community for someone to really experience deep transformation. Now that community can grow over that. But if you, if you disconnect it in that two to three years, I think it pulls people out of that. I don't, I don't mean that as a rule and you guys are free to, to use a different sort of calculus there. But as we've multiplied, we just feel like, man, if we do it earlier than 24 to 36 months, we usually regret it unless there's a really, really mission oriented extroverted person that's chomping at the bit to start something new. Let me, can we stop for a minute? I want to thank God that y'all's problem. I just want you to be able to appreciate how redemptively frustrating that is. There are churches that pray for that problem. Amen. We're supposed to repeat it question. Sorry. So, uh, (laughs) how do you think about missional opportunity and capacity? Meaning we have a need for 20 more groups, but we don't have 20 more groups to multiply. And some of the ones we have aren't healthy. And so how do we live in that tension? Um, uh, you know, like the simple answer is, I don't know. Um, so there you go. That's my, me applying Scotty stock right there. I don't know. Um, but here's what I think, here's what I think you can do. And we've experienced that at certain seasons of our life. We're not in that season right now, but in those seasons, we've just said, we, we've just tried to communicate vision and say, look, we, we don't just want you in a small group. We want you in a healthy one. And so until we have a healthy one to put you in, we're just going to ask you to keep coming on Sundays. We want you more deeply connected. It's not, it's not ideal for us or for you that there's not something to put you in, but we'd rather, it needs to be healthy. And so hang with us while we figure that out and, you know, solve the problems that we need to solve and figure out how we're going to deal with it. Because I do think as you're communicating that value of health, it helps people go, okay, I can, I can resonate with that. Um, and it kind of kills some of that consumerism too that just says, what's next for me? And helps me go, okay, what's next for me is be here and, and pray that, you know, the Lord continues to, to build health here so that I can step into something. So that's at least a thought. Well, and along with that, another thing that you can do is to be thinking about uh, we're not going to compromise our vision for what we call, you know, a gospel community, but we can create some other third space opportunities for people before we have the right groups, you know, that we would say we've got the leadership, the dynamic, and the space. So let's think about the space we do have in the building here. What are some things we can maybe do on Sunday mornings while services are going on where people can have a, a, some conversation? Or you, or you may have some of your uh, people emerging in your community group structure, your gospel communities that just, would, you know, would be available that, that, that their lifestyle enables them to hang and, and you're finding ways to make relational bridges because, see, when, when you create that good gossip up, I, I want to be in a group like you're in a group, then you, you, that's an evidence that the culture here is 
That's not just an add-on. It's central to what Park Church is. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a good buzz to have people saying, I, I want one. But until then, to have some kind of other modalities that would say, well, you know, I, I can be with part of my church that I'm beginning to call home here. And they do this cool class, these five or six-week classes on topics of Christ and culture, whatever, and just third space conversation stuff can, can help in the meantime. How do you persist in sort of the long-term challenges of leading and especially leading discipleship and gospel community? Um, so I, I do think there are, you know, there is a seasonal reality to that. So like as we walk with our leaders, we realize, gosh, there's sometimes when people go through things in life, they do need to sort of step out of leadership for a while. So we try to honor that. But most often what I'm trying to do is to say, I just try to tell our leaders, hey, look, do you want to quit? Me too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're all tired and this is really frustrating work and it's, you know, it's already not yet. And so, like, I just want to honor, like, hey, so that impulse, that tiredness, that sort of spiritual tiredness that you feel, yeah, me too, you know? Um, so why would we not quit? Well, because this is an opportunity and this is where I try to, like, graciously challenge our leaders and I do the same thing to you and to say, I think for many of us, especially as Americans, we so value competence and achievement that most of what we tend to achieve, even in spiritual community, is done in our flesh. So I don't know that any of us have really deeply experienced what it's like to be at the end of ourselves and have the Spirit meet us and give us power and joy and love that we didn't know we had. And so I just want to say, hey, to our leaders, that's where I want to get you. That's where I want you to get to. I want you to experience that amazing God's grace meeting you in your need. Because for us, man, we got a church full of competent people. And so I'm like, man, our, half our church could lead gospel communities if they wanted to. But, but many of them would do it just out of sort of skill, which isn't bad. But I want to encourage us to say, what does it mean to persist in leadership through challenges and through trials and through hardship and through, through tiredness to, to where we experience sort of like some of what I talked about last night of God meeting us in places and times where we feel like we're just ready to tap out and saying, oh, there's a fresh grace here that I didn't know was present, didn't ex know how to even experience, but now I'm, I'm experiencing it and it's, it's worship producing. Yeah, Rob. No. Yeah, it's just like, it's like premarital counseling, right? I can tell you what is going to happen, but you, you don't actually know anything I'm talking about till it happens. <laughs> so like, here's what you're going to fight about. Oh, and then now you're actually fighting about it and you're calling me and I'm saying, see, I told you this was going to happen. So I think group leadership is a lot like that, right? It's just like, I can, we can try to set people up as best we can, but until you get in that space of like, man, I'm fried and these people are driving me crazy, right? That now you know what I'm talking about. So here's what we, I think it's, I think we need to honor sometimes the need for, and you hear Scotty talk about his own burnout. So like there's, there's reality to like, sometimes people just need to step out and get healthy, but there's also that what feels like burnout, but is actually just the end of my flesh. Right. And so those are different things. So in our church, and again, I don't, our church is not a model for, for you necessarily, but what we do is pastor Justin, who's one of our other elders, the gospel community he leads is what we call gospel rehab. And what he leads is every year, it's a new gospel community with 10 to 12 of our leaders who are just sort of, they, they need 
refreshing and renewing. And so we just say, Justin, your job is not to have a missionary-minded, outward-facing, reaching on Christians in your neighborhood gospel community. Your gospel community is taking our leaders that are sort of fried and rehabbing them and renewing them and, and shepherding them so that we can send them back out the next year healthy. And so what we found that we did that to try to answer that question of like, okay, how do we pull leaders off the front lines, get them healthy? Not like forever you're off the front lines, but let's, let's give you a place to sort of renew, talk honestly about where you're stuck and sort of hopefully with the goal of sending you back out to continue leading. Um, so that's it's sort of a both and for us. Sometimes it's just, hey, keep going and experience the Spirit's grace. And sometimes it's let's let's pull you out and sort of give you a moment to to recalibrate. And again, that's some, that's a luxury that we have being 11 years in and having made some mistakes and trying to figure it out on the fly. Let me repeat the question and then let's got to answer it. So the question is, if our group is sort of, if we feel like as leaders we're becoming primarily inward focused and a lot of our time and energy is going toward like the people in our group, how can we reshape that so we can be more outward focused so that doesn't consume us yeah i think well first of all it's going to it's going to require an accepted intentionality by the church that's that's a part of the rhythm we do want for all of our gospel culture groups that is how are we training with joy even the way we pray as a as a group as we gather for the the needs in the neighborhood where we met or or are we and and how are we making central to our group an awareness of what's going on in Denver right now or our part of Denver. And I think this is where I was going with the Romans 1620 picture of, of, um, you know, the, the enemy being crushed under our feet. We're participating in a story where wherever we see systemic evil and brokenness in our city, you know, our labors in the Lord will never be in vain. So if a group begins to say, begins even to think in terms of, hey, guys, get Christmas coming before long. What, what would be, you know, something our group could do to, to, to announce tangibly uh, that the grace of God has arrived in Christ with what we call Christmas? And it's not like you're doing something every weekend just to make people more busy, but you at least start putting into play the notion of we exist for those people that are not in this you know, welcoming community right now. Um, you're going to have to fight for that because as what uh, one of the things Bob said earlier, quoting Brennan Manning, we're all radically insecure, which means we're radically self-oriented to start with. So a uh, gospel is going to do that incredible beginning of movement of, you know, looking outside ourselves. So experiment, I just think, with the little projects first, little, you know, things close by that would be doable that are not so grandiose. You're not going to plan the first trip to go uh, build a house in Mexico City. Maybe just going across the street. I mean, I'm, I'm being metaphorical here, but also specific enough to say, challenge the group to think outside. And what begins to happen is, you know, man, we love the taste of that. I mean, uh, Christ Press, some of you may know the name Scott Sauls, who uh, I've known since his church planning days in Kansas City. Uh, Scott uh, they took their gospel communities, and they are radically redefined as basic mission communities. So fellowship takes place in the context of their giving themselves away. And that church, I've watched that church in three and a half years, a very affluent, uh, ingrown, southern spiritual church have a passion for the city now that's almost unparalleled by any other church I've seen. So it just started with saying this is going to be a part of the DNA of what we call gospel community. And uh, I might add a coaching a coaching point, and maybe there's you know I don't know there's probably staff or leader that you can talk to more 
more specifically, but my question I would want to ask to you is, are you appropriately using the gifts of others in your gospel community to do some of that work? Because I think what tends to happen is leaders can take on, gosh, I've got to disciple all these people. Well, actually, you don't. Uh, They can disciple each other. And so I would want to ask two questions. One, are you empowering them and sort of releasing them to do that? And two, are you using your gathering time in the way that you could be? Because usually what I feel like is this. When I feel like my calendar is like yours, I'm like, okay, I'm leading this group, and I got 15 people in my living room on Thursday night, and it ends up that I'm having a conversation with them on Friday and Saturday and Monday and Wednesday. <laughs> you know, I'm like meeting a guy for breakfast and having a conversation on the phone and texting with this person. If, if my week starts to feel like it's filling up, the first thing I ask is, why are these people not having these conversations in our gathering? And usually the reason is because they see the gathering as sort of like, the beginning, you know, the surface level community. And then what well, I really need to talk to you about this, but I need to do that outside the group time. And I, I want to try to pull those conversations into the group time and say, Hey, since we're all trying to grow in Christ, whatever you're struggling with, can we talk about it here? And some things can't, but most things you can. So that those are just two sort of tweak questions I'd want to ask as well. Yeah. Excellent question. Again, I don't know. Um, oh, sorry. I'll repeat the question. What's the best way to break out of homogeneity and fight against homogeneity in groups? Um, there's actually sort of two, <laughs> there's philosophically two approaches to this, right? One is break it at all costs. The other is we'll just let it happen that way. Because it's, so I think, especially as we value more and more the beauty of diversity, what we sort of want is I want every gospel community in our church to have economic diversity, racial diversity, age diversity, life stage diversity. And I'm just like, I do too, but that's probably idealistic. And so I want to I give people the freedom to say, man, if a bunch of single people in their late 20s feel like they have dense community with one another, I don't want to just say that's the only people you need to have community with, but I do want to value what's present there of them feeling some sense of um, community with one another. So I want to keep preaching that the gospel pulls us outside of that, but I also want to say, well, Sometimes that's like, I was just telling the table over here, the gospel community I'm leading right now is a bunch of doctors. And here's what I learned about doctors. No matter how much you tell them, how much you to be involved in the life of the rest of the church, they're on call 80 hours a week. And so the only way I could get them in a gospel community was to say, I'm going to start a gospel community that's basically doctors, nurses, medical professionals. Those are the only people that are in the group. And we'll just trust that God's going to do something within that sort of group. And, and it's, it's not homogenous at all. They're all like really busy, really stressed. They all are standing to make $500,000 a year from now as soon as they get out of residency. Like they're affluent, highly achieving. And I'm just like, there's, there's things about that that I hate because it's just like there's no, they're all achievers and they're all driven. But there's actually something beautiful the Lord can do in the midst of that because the, applying the gospel looks relatively the same for everybody in the group. So just going to amen that and add to it that it, 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 I think it, healthy church is going to have both and, but the bigger image or the bigger picture of the church is that the culture of the entire church is intergenerational welcoming tapestry being woven. Then the community group doesn't bear the whole weight of making that happen. So if, if the narrative, if the story is being preached in a way that we really preach the ingathering of the nations and we start praying for, you know, what are the different people groups that live, you know, 20, 20 miles from where we gather as a community and, and what are the obstacles to the diversity coming into our community? Uh, so you, you find a culture of diversity, and then you see naturally where that emerges in certain community groups, but you don't make it a, a rule or a law of the Medes and the Persians. And so 
Honoring both, I think, is really key to that. Praying for greater inclusiveness, but knowing that sometimes, you know, some people bent upon their temperaments are just going to be far more at home for quite some time with people that are like them. So, so if a gospel community is really good at sort of the Bible study part, but not so much the gospel application part, how do we help it grow toward that? Uh, first of all, what a great question, right? Like I think Scotty and I both say, having been in churches where Bible study is sort of the end and that's all we do, what, just the fact that you're seeing that and wanting to move past it is beautiful. So um, I, I think, honestly, the challenge for you as a leader is it's hard to get people past that without assertive leadership. You have to sort of challenge them to go beyond. And it usually takes some courage on the part of the leader to say, okay, guys, great. We're talking about the content. That's great. Um, so what? You know, how, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with redemption? What does this have to do with transformation? How do we get from we're talking about the text to we're asking what the point is of this to our hearts and souls? Um, so I don't think there's an easy answer of like, we'll just do this, this, and this, and you'll get there. But I do think that... Um, what it requires is, number one, starting with prayer and asking, okay, Lord, in light of the people you've given me and what I see them, where I see them sort of interacting, how can I intentionally and intelligently take them to sort of a place of deeper gospel application? And, and Lord, would you start provoking those things in their souls? And then, um, you know, I think you guys have great theological resources here. So, like, understanding that gospel transformation diagram and just sort of helping people begin to sort of long for that. Um, is helpful. And, and then just like persisting over time as a leader um, and, and sometimes provoking things in ways that you need to. You know, I had a group like that a couple years ago and I finally like in the middle of a discussion one night, I was like, hey guys, I love you all. You're driving me crazy because we're just flitting on the surface of talking about the Bible and none of you guys are talking about what's really going on in your heart. So I'll start, let me tell you what's really going on in me, and then can we just go deeper together? And I think that sort of that sort of like, you know, calling time out and stepping deeper is a, is a helpful practice sometimes. Amen to that, Bob. You know, we, uh, Jack Miller used to refer to what you're describing as leaders as gospel pace setters. So we will tend, those of us that are hosting the groups or leading the groups, if we can lead not manipulatively, but genuinely with, with where the gospel is messing with us some. If we kind of create, because anytime people come into your home or you go into their home and you're the leader, they assume you don't sin like they sin. They assume you're over-struggling with the stuff they're struggling with now. So if we can kind of create, you know, a gospel ethos of leaders need Jesus and, uh, and you're appropriately thinking through what would be helpful just to kind of make it real clear could be sometimes the leader saying, you guys, you need to know the battle I had even wanting to be here tonight. Can we just start? Y'all just gathering around me and praying for me. You know, it's been one of those weeks. So, so steward your own, you know, moment, place in life, week, month. And that's going to say, wow, this is a little bit safer place than I realized. And that, that can, that can move, you know, get, get some traction from that informed mind being that inflamed heart towards that engaged hands into the larger community so and i think that's where the church needs to always be thinking about even what we're doing here uh ongoing cycles of nurture nourishment just making you guys lives busy with organizing stuff but you know uh church caring for those in the trenches are doing this kind of work and and and, and the and the pastors and the staff modeling uh, growth and grace for you guys and encourage you guys and praying for you to make sure you're not being burned out caring for others and you don't feel like you're being nurtured yourselves. So.
that's a really great. So uh, a, a group that's deep and that, that really does do well going deep with each other, but that's recognizing, gosh, some of the insecurities these people have sort of dominate their whole existence. And so in addition to just trying to do the best we can to talk about those and apply the gospel to them, what else can we be doing to to continue to root that, that insecurity? Um, I think a, a couple things. One, it, it, it will take some time, right? Like there's, there's people who just like, it's going to take five or six years in community f- for the transformation to feel like, oh, I'm on the other side of this. I, I see the light at the end of the tunnel in this particular aspect of what insecurity looks like in my life. So I think there's just a patience and just like a persisting and knowing the Lord's at work and the Lord's grace is at work. And I have a, um, <laughs> a friend who, uh, goes to do solitude at this Catholic monastery and one of the monks made this comment to him. He said, you Protestants think in terms of years, and that's the problem with you. Uh, we Catholics think in terms of centuries. And I think that's a good reminder for us because we want to see transformation fast. And I just realized, man, there's people in my church that it's been 10 years, and I'm finally seeing like, oh, this person's finally trying, finally changing. Like I, I see them becoming different. So some of it is just persisting. Um, I think the other thing is helping there's a difference between acknowledging insecurity or knowing what my struggles are and really being really deeply longing for that to be different. So I think acknowledging it is great and like talking about it is great, but where I want to, I want to continually press people to say, okay, but do you believe that Jesus can actually change this? That like that you can become a different kind of person and are you really longing for that and trusting him for that? And so like in my gospel community, one of my dearest, dearest friends, um, a girl that I led to Christ and my wife and I have discipled her for five years now, man, she has deep battles with depression. And so we just go through these cycles for five years now of like really, really low lows. And, um, and we've walked with her through that whole season. And, you know, we've like, she's, she herself is a therapist. So she understands like, I got to do there's psychological work to do and, and psychosomatic work to do, but she's trying to ask, but how does the gospel affect this area of my life? And, and we're just trying to encourage her of like, Hey, to Scotty's point, maybe it changes you and heals that, or maybe that's just the cross you have to bear for the rest of your life. Either way, can we just walk together and trust the Lord to, to give more hope in those deep points and to, and to bring more community around you that can help you and hold you in those, in those moments. And I, and she's starting to become more the person who speaks that and preaches that to others who are like her unless the person who just feels like, ah, I just don't know what to do next. You know, so she now is able to preach the gospel to other people who struggle with depression in similar ways that she does. And it's really life giving to her to do that. And so that to me is an example. Okay. That's what I'm after. I'm not after her being healed this side of, of heaven necessarily, but I am after her experiencing enough of God's grace in that, that she can now meaningfully minister to others. And along that line, um, some churches who experience the phenomenon you're talking about begin to circle the wagons and say, where have we created a culture of bearing burdens to the exception of a culture of equipping and discipling? So I think a part of what a church needs to do in every season of its life is to say, you know, where, where have we answered a very critical need of assimilating and welcome, you know, but we haven't quite kept pace with you know, either within those groups, putting the markers of what actual growth and the means of grace, spiritual disciplines looks like, or making sure that we are creating other on-ramps to train leaders to know what discipleship looks like and not just caregiving. And I say that first-handedly because 
in our church in Franklin, when God brought this incredible revival where people were being converted out of the wazoo, we weren't strategic. We were reactive, and we just added on more services because more people are showing up. They simply want to come. And so we became more of a rehab for people coming out of either non-spirituality or broken spirituality, creating more services, but we were not equally making space and time for growth and organic maturity. So, you know, you know, if what you're describing is something that becomes, huh, you know, this, it's more a phenomenon. Look at all the unique people the Lord's bringing to our community, and we want them to be known, loved, accepted, and welcomed, and prayed for. But, but yeah, what are we doing to help disciple them so that they, they're not codependent on their gospel community group as much? So, I mean, I think... Part of that might be, hey, we need to make sure we are, really are making disciples and not just creating um, what Jack Miller used to call dens with comfortable cushions. So, with the pastor being the chief cushioneer, which I was for a lot of years. So. We, we, we actually think about that a lot because that's our whole, our whole church, man. We have tons and tons and tons of little kids in our church. So every gospel community is trying to solve, or most of our gospel communities are trying to solve that same challenge. Oh, sorry. The challenge. <laughs> Jeff, thank you. The challenge of how, what do you do with kids, and especially if kids, you know, if you have a bunch of people who are, like, newly married and now kids are a new part of the equation of that gospel community as it grows. Um, so I think with infants, you know, it's, infants are easier because it's just like, well, you got to respond to their needs. And sometimes they just need to be in the group and whatever. As those kids start to grow a little bit, you need to create probably some parallel structures of how do we take care of those kids, but also give the adults a chance to have meaningful conversation that goes deep and it's not interrupted every five minutes. Um, so, you know, again, yeah, I don't know. There's lots of different ways you can solve that and different strategies for going about that. Um, at this stage in your community, if it's just newly pregnant moms, I would just want to sort of reiterate Hey, we're excited for you, and we're excited about solving these problems together and, like, and, and working out what does it mean for us to continue to be in community together with these new beautiful children that are going to sort of complicate our, uh, you know, what, our, what our gathering looks like a little bit. Uh, you want to welcome that. You want to be excited about that, and you want to help them see, hey, it's not just have your baby and figure it out and keep coming to our group, but it's when you have this baby, we're going to figure it out together. We want to we be a real spiritual family here, and so let's welcome this child together, and let's also figure out what can we do to sort of um, serve one another in this. So here's what, at the stage that your group is at, what I've found is if, if when that baby's born and that new mom shows up to the group, if, if one or two other ladies in the group are like, hey, can I hold your baby for a few minutes so you can just get your food? Like, that's amazingly ministering to it to a new mom right and so just that those simple how do we love each other it allows you to pull people in the group and here's an easy way to serve hold this person's baby for 10 minutes so they can eat or you know gosh help them figure out how this baby needs to go to bed at 6 30 and our group meets at you know till eight so what are we going to do about that let's let's figure that out together those kinds of challenges and likewise we struggled tried to make one size fits all and that never works so uh Christ community, I remember some of the things we would do is there were some groups that would say, uh, maybe three groups decided it'll be easy for us to meet at the church property. We're going to hire our babysitters to work in the nursery rooms of the church while we meet in three different parts of the building. 
Now, that didn't become normative, but there were just some groups that had so many kids, you know, when you have families with nine children or whatever else, and we had some unique paradigms. So, so that was a possibility. There were some groups that actually met as a community group Sunday morning during Sunday school hour, extra space while kids are in the normal flow of child care, et cetera. There were other groups that started saying, we're going to meet uh, not every week, but every other week. And one, one of the weeks is all the kids are together, and we're going to know each other as family units. So we're going to plan that night to be not concentrating on the study, but praying for each other's kids, you know. And then the next week we'll, we'll have a paid sitter or something. So, you know, I think each group, I don't want to make things too complex here or contradict what the, uh, what the, the understanding is at, at Park City, but flexibility you know, try different things, be accommodating, but, um, yeah, so diversity, creativity, but embrace the ordinary. That was one thing I wanted to say here for sure. A lot of what we do in community groups is learning how to embrace the mundane, the ordinary, and experience in that group the pace of grace we want to live the rest of the week. So it cannot be spectacular spiritual orgasmic every time where we're just having these incredible fireworks and the perfect kumbaya moment. What a great question. Jeff, let me repeat that question so everybody knows what it was. Um, a group with a lot of young believers in it and, and a tendency to when someone, getting, getting deep enough that we're talking about real things like addiction and sexual sin, but a lot of sort of like, oh, that's fine, me too, and, and too much maybe... A, a wrong understanding of grace that sort of just says, well, let's just accept one another and, you know, keep, keep going. Um, and not enough focus on sort of what does repentance, putting sin to death look like? Um, uh, you know, my favorite answer here is, I don't know, but let me, let me give you a couple of things I've done that might work. Uh, you know, again, if you have freedom, asking for sort of freedom from your leaders to say, hey, can we sort of for a month or two in our group just sort of go at these things? I would just try to say like, hey, guys, as a leader, Here's, I see a couple common themes in what we're talking about. I mean, a lot of you guys are struggling with sexual sin. Some of you guys have this, this or that addiction. Can we just spend a few weeks talking together about how the Bible speaks to that? And, and just sort of, in a sense, saying, since this is what's going on in this community, let's talk about it together. And so then picking some passages that allow you to just get after that and that create the conversation you want to have, which is, hey, guys, so it seems like the Bible here is calling us to repentance and change. It feels a lot like we're sort of skimming on the surface of, oh, me too, good for you. But, like, what would it look like for us to actually challenge each other toward a, a deeper sort of repentance, holiness, godly pursuit? You know, so I think just taking stock of what's going on and saying, okay, we're going to spend three weeks going after this and see what happens. That's one way to go. Uh, Jack would say, Jack Miller would say, and I keep, I hate to keep quoting him like he's the lost apostle or something, but so much of us saw about gospel beauty was how he approached these things. And Jack would say a mark of gospel culture and time is going to create not less, but quicker repentances, just the atmosphere of here's what repentance is. It's not busted, but you know, wow, uh, freedom. Jesus has come to set the captives free. So back to the Acts 2 passage. The voice of the apostles teaching and see a part of what's going to happen, like when you mentioned that um, community groups don't just go from the pulpit into the neighborhoods. It goes in the opposite direction. Y'all need to be letting the pastors know what themes are emerging that you believe should they should be aware of to help shape where are we going next in this series? Or maybe here's some things we need to be more responsible to speak to from Scripture about the, the beauty of sexuality. And because you see, 
as we lean into the next part of the 21st century, apostles' teaching is going to get more and more and more marginalized. It's just going to be completely, that's just so antiquated, redundant. We don't need that. We just need more grace. And so this dichotomy between the voice of God and the grace of God is going to be something we've got to anticipate. And let's just be nice. Just don't be like those pointy-headed fundies that don't really understand same-sex attraction, you know. So um, um, make sure you are communicating with your pastors the themes emerging in your community groups. Uh, learn from them. Also refer to them. What we developed in time was uh, through our community group stru- structure, leaders informed about if certain people begin to evidence struggles, um, you know, keep your pastors in the loop, but also we need to be aware of the best referral possibilities in the community. Uh, sexual addiction became a huge theme in our church. Fortunately, God gave us uh, one of our members, a former pastor that came into Franklin, um, having lost his ministry precisely because he became addicted uh, to sex to the point of spending a third of a million dollars on hookers and pornography. Well, the gospel so shaped him. His name's Nate Larkin. Some of you know that name, Samson and the Pirate Monks. It's just a great gospel story of a resource of how one man's journey of becoming aware of how grace alone enables me to really look at the reality of my life and how this part of my image of God has been hijacked. And uh, so in, in, the, in the culture of our church, what began was... Uh, you know, a, a, a means or a knowledge of even in the community. Who, who really understands these issues well and where can we go to help resource people in the larger body where predominant themes or people even drop a bomb in our group that really says, you know, we don't just need to kind of say, oh, well, let me pray for you. Bless your heart. Me too. Because sometimes it's not me too. Sometimes someone gave you a tip of the iceberg when below that iceberg there's some really dark stuff. So, but an atmosphere of grace will make repenting easier, not do more, try harder, but this is a hard struggle. Can y'all resource me as a group and can the larger church help us walk in this area? So, yeah. How do you prioritize the time you spend doing discipleship, investing in believers versus trying to move those people outward into the community? Um, man, that's, that's such a challenge. And I think that the, the answer is different depending on. The, con- the, the moment in your group's life and on, I think, your spiritual gifting, okay? So I think some people who are really evangelistically gifted, those people need to be spending 70% of their time pulling us outward. And if those people who really have sort of like teaching or discernment or exhortation gifts probably need to be spending a bunch of their time working, you know, that 70% working inward. Um, so I don't think there's a clean, like, line. Here's what I would say that I've tried to do is to say um, – and this goes back to some of the other questions that we answered a minute ago. If I think of discipleship and evangelism as two different categories, I think I've already missed it. So, so I want to think about my job is to disciple everyone, whether they're Christian or not yet a Christian. And so the way this works in a healthy gospel community that's actually seeing people come in who are not Christians is I just empower these folks to disciple these new people coming into the group. So like in my you know, my current gospel community that's these doctors, right? There's um, one one doctor brought this other doctor to the group who had not even attended our church yet. She just was sort of like interested in some kind of spiritual community, not a Christian as far as I could tell. And so we're just trying to say, okay, well, 
here's our here's our missional focus now, right? It's not go clean up at trash at the neighborhood park. It's there's a non-Christian sitting in our living room. That's the mission. That's a person made in the image of God. The trash in the park will still be there a month from now. So I think when we think about mission, we tend to think in these sort of simplistic ways. And I'm just saying, like, man, what I want to see is if a non-Christian's in the room, that's the mission priority. And so how do we engage that person, pull them into community, and meaningfully start to open up conversation about the gospel and what it looks like. Now, that always takes place over time, and it always involves more than one person. And so I, I don't have a simple answer to your question of, like, how do you prioritize as a leader how you lean? I just think what I'm always aiming for is a group that has that sort of inflow. So there's always a new person for me to go, okay, here's the, you know, for me as a pastor, here's the next non-Christian I need to share the gospel with. Uh, for me as a leader, here's the next person I need to sit down and say, hey, so where are you at? How'd you get into this group? Where are you at in your sort of pursuit of God? What questions do you have about the Bible? And, and sort of using the group to, to be the means of that sort of outward focus. So a group of 20-somethings that are sort of all adulting and figuring that out. And, and the conversation tends to flow around, here's what's going on at work. How do I become the best version of me and what I'm doing? Rob, Mark, thanks, you guys. Thanks for the ride this morning. See you guys. Um, so so what's the, what are some resources or, or even some sort of theological framework to help tackle that? Yeah, let me ask you, um, and I should have started with this question actually. So are y'all's groups um, flowing out of the sermons in the morning? Are y'all, do y'all gather to study the groups? Do you have a, a stated curriculum together? Is every group on its own? What's, what's the connection with the Sunday morning preachment and what's content of reflection? Okay, so he, so here's what we did to to specifically go where you're going. What I would do, and I'm not suggesting you guys should do this, but here's a way to getting after that. Because uh, we thought too, it was really good if the, if the if the if the if the body, if our groups can be interacting with where we are wrestling with scripture as a larger community. Uh, I would write questions that the groups would would take on. So our, all of our uh, gospel groups and community groups. They would have questions written by me or whoever the lead pastor was preaching that week. And, and the questions messed with us in a way where we could either avoid the question, but the questions are going to be shaped so that we're going to be looking um, not just at the logistics of life, you know. So, well, and well, let me do this. I'm just say this and let, let Bob, Archbishop, jump in here. Um, so that's where we leaders develop better skills to answer more in keeping with what we want the issue for them to understand is. So I hear your question. Here's how the gospel speaks to that. In other words, we, we, we acquire leading skills that, and if, even if they don't emotionally connect with that yet, like, what do you mean the gospel? Is that a little person? Is that a member of our church? Who, who's this gospel person, you know, and gospel said? No, but we, we begin to frame it that way, and soon they're going to begin thinking more in that rhythm. So part of that's going to be the warfare we do as leaders, knowing that as Flannery O'Connor said, we're all allergic to grace, and, and we'll, we'll, we want pragmatism, and we want it just to be managing sin. And, and we got to know that's a, that's a part of a resistance field. That's why we need to pray for each other in our groups, because we are allergic to the gospel, and, 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 and our soul is shaped towards anything other than this radical story of a sovereign God um, lavishing upon us irrepressible love that has claims on everything. So it's a skill set we learn.
One of my African American pastor friends calls me Bishop in Omaha, so that's funny that when you say I like that, called me Bishop Bob. I'm like, all right, thanks. Um, the uh, <laughs> that's so common for groups in that stage because that's what everybody's sort of feeling. It's the it's the present reality of life. And so there's this disconnect of, okay, I understand gospel salvation, Jesus, redemption, but my boss is being a jerk to me. What do I do about that, right? Or like, I'm trying to get this promotion, so what? So how does Jesus help me get this promotion? Um, so, but it seems to me like you as a leader are discerning something, which is like, okay, our conversations tend to revolve around the same set of topics, and it doesn't seem like we're really meaningfully getting down to how does the gospel speak to those things. And so I would want to empower you as a leader to say, what if you just sort of say that to the group and sort of say, hey, guys, I know we're all on this same stage and sort of feeling these same things, but do we have to talk? We have the same conversation every week about, like, the same struggles, but the struggles don't seem to me to be soul struggles. They seem to be circumstantial. So, like, how do we get past the what's going on at work to the what is that surfacing in us about identity, about security, about fear, right? Um, I, I have a group that's a lot like yours. It's, it's all these, you know, late 20, early, early 30-something medical residents. And so they're all like, our conversation every week is, oh, dude, I'm so tired. I worked like, I was on call the last three nights. I slept like two hours before I came over here. I'm just totally fried. I had that conversation four weeks in a row with the same guy. And this guy is like a sharp young guy who has some sort of a good sort of theological background and, and formation. And so finally, I just said to him over dinner one night, not like in the group, as we're sitting at the table, I was like, hey, man, every week you come here, all you talk about is how busy your work is. Is that all you care about? And because I'm trying to provoke, I knew I had the relationship with him that I could sort of provoke him that way. But I just want to say, like, hey, man, can we talk about, like, what if you just led us in prayer this week? What if you, like, try to actually, in, in the midst of your tiredness from work, what if we could engage more deeply? So I just think you're seeing something that the Lord's probably inviting you to press into with the group. And there's probably a, a lot, of, but my guess is identity is going to be one of the key categories for people in that life stage that you can just sort of say, how, do, how can we get down to questions of who we're trying to be and how much of that is tied up in our work, our career, our success, our achievement? That's good. Um, I'm going to ask one more question. Then I'm, I have one question for you guys, and then we're going to pray and wrap up. So, yeah, we'll um, we've tried a couple different things. I mean, the most effective way is obviously to have them be in a healthy small group. But if you have a limited number of those to begin with, um, that becomes more challenging. Um, so, we've done a couple things, Neil. And sorry, what are effective ways to raise up new leaders? That's the question. Um, we, for a couple of years, tried starting like what we call the turbo group, which is just let's get people that we feel like have leadership potential and a pastor or staff member is going to lead them for 10 weeks and sort of say, here's how we want a gospel community to work. Let me try to model it for you. Now go lead one. So sort of trying to just jumpstart some. Sometimes that's really effective if you have people that are like have the capacity to lead and want to and you just need to sort of establish the right DNA and culture. Um, the other thing we've started doing is just to say, um, how can our staff, our, our like vocational ministry leaders get down to the level that's beyond our current leaders? So get down to that emerging leader level and just try to tap and develop as many of those people as possible across the whole spread of our church. So we're trying to ask as leaders, not just how do we work with people who are currently leading, but how do we work with people that we envision could be leading a year from now and just see our goal as, you know, so we try to put metrics on it and say, hey, so you, staff member, your job this year, your job is 
get us five people that could start gospel committees by next year, you know, and that's not going to get us 20, but if we get five or a quarter of the way there and that's a win, you know, so trying to tie it to how can we get to that level of emerging leaders and just identify people who have a passion to make disciples, have some raw leadership skills and empower and train them. I can't top that one. I mean, really, it, the, the more we are able to speak the vision and the strategy from the pulpit so that it becomes more the air we're breathing, so there's even greater anticipation where people are just kind of knowing this is how we understand this extraordinary story of outrageous love and grace. It, it, it's coming to, I'm a, we're all characters in the story and we're all carriers. So we just keep imbibing that more and more people who think I could never lead one of those groups. We can realize, no, this isn't for experts. It's, it's just a part of learning how to be good friends. You know, we're just, we're just using language. Maybe, maybe that's a part of it. We re, even ramp down some of the spiritual language, small group leader, you know, you know, becoming an intentional friend. This is a part of what story scripture telling here. So people get, you know, less overwhelmed by the daunted by the categories and the language. So, um, so my last question for you guys, um, and not speaking about leaders, but these are our leaders right here. So, um, my question is, we have had a lot of questions about burnout and, you know, we're, we're a young church with young leaders, um, and some wise leaders as well. Um, but apparently are new are newlyweds um, and uh, so you've spoken about this all week long, but what rhythms, what practical things what what how would you encourage us as young leaders um, to behold christ to to find our affection our joy, our delight in him um, in defense of the i'm not good enough today to lead tonight um, what what things would you want in our lives? to propel us that direction. There's no substitute for a vital and regular practice of spiritual disciplines. Uh, if you're not seeking the Lord yourself apart from, I got to lead a group tonight, so I need to study this passage so I know what to say. Um, man, you're always going to find yourself in that place of sort of spiritual fatigue and burnout. Um, and so you, each one of you in this room has to take responsibility for your own soul first because you can't lead people to places where you're not. And so it's not a pastor's job to help you be healthy. It's not a leader's job to help you be healthy. It's your job as a disciple of Jesus to pursue the health of your soul. Um, now, you probably need coaching and help and, help and accountability and all that, but, but you have to take responsibility for that. Uh, for me, uh, one of the key practices that I think our culture has no value for is the practice of regular solitude. Um, and so I try to take one day every six to eight weeks where I'm just away. Now, if you can't take a day, take a morning. If you can't take a morning, take three hours. But the, the we cannot, the, the health of the soul can't be like microwaved. And so you have to give space for how am I listening to the Lord? How am I processing my own idolatry? How am I dealing with the frustration I feel toward this person in my life that I don't know why I'm frustrated with them, but they just drive me nuts? Why? Why? What's in me that I need to see? Um, so, man, we, I just think a regular practice of solitude. And look, if, you, if solitude is a scary thing to you or like something you've never tried, there's a learning curve. 
there's um and and you know there's resources you can find that help you sort of walk in that direction of what do I do if I'm going to take eight hours what do I do? what do I do that's the the most common question I get from high achievers is like what would I do for eight hours the point is you would do nothing that's the point um so like uh but but I think that's a really key practice is just um and then in it, the only thing I'd say in addition to that is just you know what Scotty said about like quicker repentances. I just think, like, of course you're going to face days where you're not spiritually ready, quote-unquote, to lead a group tonight because you just feel like your soul's out of whack or you had a fight with your, you know, your spouse an hour ago and you're trying to... And so I think the, like, the beauty of quick repentance and just leaning into Jesus and saying, all right, Lord, I do not... Like, I'll give you... My, here's my story. My gospel community is on Thursday nights. My days off are Friday and Saturday. So that means by Thursday night, I've worked a five-day week and usually a lot of hours that involved a lot of... And so I'm just like fried on Thursday night. And so I'm going home to my living room like, I don't want to see any of you people. Go away. Like, why are you here? And so literally every Thursday on my drive home, I'm doing this in my own soul. Like, all right, Lord, man, I'm at the end of like what I have to offer. I need, I need grace that you have to offer. I need you to help me even just love these people because I, I love them on my best day, but this isn't my best day. And so, man, help me, help me, help me love them as best I can and, and show your power through me. Yeah. Just underscoring amen in that, I would say this, uh, all of us need to be aware of the habits of our hearts. We all have the same amount of hours in any given day. Granted, we have different complications. Some of you that have four children from age seven down to 10 months, that's, that's a complication. But here's what I found out in my life. You know, if I'm not aware of where the investment of my time is going, the good will become the enemy of the best. And really most of our calls for really guarding our heart, having a refreshed heart, fueling the affections for Jesus, they're born out of making those calls. There's some stuff I used to do obsessively like exercise. And I used to, you know, make sure I would run 25 miles every week or I would make sure even on vacation they'd have a weight room there or, you know, certain things I just assumed the right to that I didn't realize, you know what? Uh, yeah, I love these three cooking channel shows and they're just reviving to me to watch Mario Batali or whoever or Rachel Ray or whatever. But it's amazing. If, if I can make time for, let's say, four hours of uh, cooking shows a week and no time just for silence and communing with Jesus, it's just an issue of who or what's really controlling the, the, the habits of my heart. Um, and there's going to always be a war for that until we're glorified. Please know that. There's, there's It's just a a battle for our hearts. That's why King David cried out in Psalm 86 or 84, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I might really be, live in awe of you. I mean, David's struggling with, yeah, I'm a man after your own heart. I'm also an adulterer. So I need you to do in my heart what grace alone can do. So we battle for our hearts and we look at our schedule in every season of life. I try to look now at, at, at a particular season like this season right for now for me is an extraordinary amount of outside work. And I've got to say, what am I doing to take advantage of the time I do have just to be quiet before the Lord? Um, habits of the heart, um, make time. Um, yeah, spiritual disciplines seen as a means of grace, you know jettison the idea of the quiet time for fellowshipping with my father. Am I fellowshipping with my father? I mean, just, you know, basic sonship, discipleship language. Sometimes it's what we call something. A quiet time, righteousness, you know, sometimes doesn't really breed communion with Jesus. Just like, got over my four chapters. Okay, I won't have it blow out on the interstate. And I read four chapters of the Bible. should feel good. No, it's, it's really, 
it's like, you know, for those of us that are married, we know the difference between side by side and face to face. We know that, that even sex is no substitute for emotional connection. And so we've got to say, are we invested in this relationship enough that it matters to us to connect? Okay. The Lord's never disconnected from us, but we're the ones that get very side by side with him. So habits of the heart, rhythms of grace, encouraging each other and knowing that we will continue to fight that battle until Jesus comes back to glorify us.